Here we go, April the 12th, 2015, lecture discussion number 193 on the book of Romans. And last week being first fruits, we have to ask the appropriate question, where are we now? Something we should do every week, but we're somewhere between uh, Matthew 25 and Romans 11 by way of 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, with 2 Corinthians 5 thrown onto the heap. Uh, we throw in 2 Corinthians 5 for the purpose of ensuring that we we understand. Did I say 2 Corinthians 5? I hope I did. Uh, for the purpose of ensuring proper understanding of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So you, I want you to consider 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11 to be the stabilizing force, for lack of a better term. That which opposes our human instinct to careen into oncoming traffic in a doctrinal sense. Second Corinthians 5, I get many letters uh, also with regard to the taking of the bride or the sign of the taking of the bride. If you wish to refer to it as its name that most know by, uh, that would be the rapture. And the question becomes, is it pre-tribulational, is it pre-wrath, or, or is it the upsy-downsy view? The upsy-downsy view says that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation. So Christ comes, he raises everybody up, and then he sends them back down, which is why it's called the upsy-downsy view, or post-tribulation. There isn't any time difference between somehow he raises us in the air, and then he immediately puts us right back down onto the ground, which, as you can tell by my attempt at uh, sarcasm there, I don't think that can be defended. But before uh, we're going to return to that subject, uh, to the complexities of the missing bride, or the taken bride of Matthew 25, or the sign of the taken bride to be exact and more specific, or if you will, the rapture, before we return to that, there's a few interesting items that have surfaced, as, as is always now the case, it seems, things that I thought to be applicable to our current subject, and, and though I concede you may not agree that they are uh, interesting or applicable, certainly you won't think they're connective maybe, but they are. I will concede they may not be interesting, but they're certainly connective. So I'm going to give you subjects here that have arisen, and I'm going to tell you they're connective to the taken bride, the sign of the taken bride in um, in First Thessalonians 4 and uh, and Second Corinthians I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. Obviously, I continue searching these subjects, and I bring them to the lectures because I believe them to be relevant to the end of the age of the Gentiles, where I think we are. We're right on the precipice, right on the edge of the end of the age of the Gentiles, and so I'm looking for things that will confirm that. The sign of the taken bride the sign of the nation of Israel, the sign of Noah, the sign of Lot's wife, all of those and others start to show up here at this particular time, and we can see them manifest. It's not coincidental that we have been evaluating Matthew 25, and my emails are starting to demonstrate that because I get Arise concerning Lot's wife. People want to know about Lot's wife. That is, again, something I would expect. Quite a few of on Cain and Abel as well, which is the blood sacrifice versus the bloodless sacrifice. The whole Bible, I just wrote a wonderful, nice lady, uh, Lori. Where are you from, Lori? I don't remember. But I just wrote a long, she wrote a letter to me and I wrote her back. Uh, talking about Cain and Abel. Well, I expect Cain and Abel to be around now at the end of the age of the Gentiles as we are beginning to watch for the signs of the taking of the bride uh, because of this bloodless sacrifice versus the blood sacrifice, Christ versus Christless. Cain presented a Christless offering. Now, the whole Bible, as I was about to say, is filled with blood. The whole Bible, we have, we have the blood in front on Adam and Eve. We have blood in Leviticus. We have the sacrificial system is all about blood. Why would somebody decide that the uh, issue of Cain and Abel is not a blood issue? It makes absolutely no sense. 
And blood everywhere. And you say in all of the scripture where everywhere there's blood, this is the one place it's not about blood. I don't believe that can be defended. And in fact, I think it's, it's just, that kind of thinking stuns me. But these are the kinds of letters that come when we discuss oil or no oil, which is what we've done the last couple of months. Matthew 25, 1 13. Anyway, as you are aware, we're told to be as Ezekiel was, Ezekiel 3.17. We're supposed to be a little miniature Ezekiel. And long ago when I read and studied uh, the book of Ezekiel, especially 3.17 through 21, I knew immediately the implications of that verse to me. And I've thought about it for 20 years personal aspect of those verses. I've always assumed that they're in the pastor job description. But I also concluded that they're in the packet that all believers receive. Therefore, it's wise to occasionally review our assignment. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let's go and read Ezekiel. 317. When you sign up, he gives you a new employee introduction. What do they call that? What word am I really trying to get? When you're the new employee, you have to go through a, a process. I can't remember the name of it. So somebody will have to tell me later. Now, it came to pass at the end of seven days orientation, new employee orientation. There we go. Now, it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Ezekiel is called son of man a lot, by the way, and that is a title normally applied to Christ. So understand why Ezekiel and Christ share that title, even though man is not capitalized for Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. God says to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. Notice God says to the wicked, you will surely die. And at the, at simultaneously, he's trying to do what? He intends to save the life of the wicked. Do, you, do we think like that? Oh, there's somebody wicked. I think I'll save his life. That's how God thinks. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you, he's talking to Ezekiel, give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Welcome to employee orientation. This is the rules. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and also you will have delivered your soul. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So, what did he tell Ezekiel? What is he telling us to do? What's our assignment? What's our orders? We are told to be those who watch. We watch for things, and we warn. That's our job. So take count of what it is that we're supposed to be watching and to whom you are, 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 we are all supposed to issue warnings to. If your plan is to watch D Drunken Stupor, or what's the, what's the new movie? Uh, 
fast and furiously stupid seven or whatever it is. If that's what you're doing, you think that's what we're supposed to watch. Those kinds of movies are book face or twit face or two and a half utter idiots. Insert your own foolish example. Then I submit you're not watching. You're not watching what you're supposed to be watching. You're distracted. And then that means you can't warn anybody. You have no understanding of what's going on. And if somebody comes in front of you that needs a warning, you're useless to them. Notice you're not following orders. By the way, why not? Why wouldn't you want to follow orders? What stops you from following your orders? Notice that those who warn have delivered their soul. Now, this gets back to Bill's mucus, maggots, and dingleberry analogy. Next week, we'll try to put that in for the Internet. What does it mean, having delivered their souls? Does it mean that our salvation is dependent on how many warnings we issue? If you thought that when I read that, then what's happened to you? Mucus, maggots, and dingleberries. You're in the, you're in the blackberry briars. It's not what it means. The short answer is no. It does not mean that our salvation is dependent on how many warnings we issue. It does not mean that. Never disregard the whole of Scripture just because a single verse has confused you or us or confused a bevy of commentators. How are we saved? We are saved by Christ's blood and only Christ's blood. That's how we're saved. And people who know that, those who have got that truth embedded in them, those are those people are grateful for their undeserved, unearned, merciful gift of eternal life. Those kinds of people watch. I had somebody come up to me a long time ago. He said, I didn't even know... It, Probably 20 years ago now, I can still see his face. He probably doesn't look like that now. He came up to me, he said, before I was saved, I didn't even pay attention to Israel. Now all I do is pay attention to Israel. What's happened to me? I said, well, you're you're on your job now. You're watching. And you warn others. You're starting to look around so that you you know how to warn people. What's that mean? That means you're no longer self-focused. There's the self-focus test, isn't there? Listen, God says to people to us, love others as yourself. What's he implying? We really love ourselves. But on the self-focus test, give yourself a grade. If if one is watching and looking out for others and warning others. In other words, not self-focused. And ten is entirely self-focused. Surrounded by mirrors. Grade yourself. Someone has warned all of us. We are likewise to be grateful and warned. Which causes the question, does it not? Who would receive the warning... Who would accept the blood of Christ and then tell no one? Who would do that? Who would accept salvation and respond with silence? Never share it. Never tell anybody that they're in danger of death. Simply let it sit. Who would think like that? Who warns no one? Who watches for nothing? Is it even possible to do that? By, the, by that I mean, could someone be saved from certain death, a death, a death that is merited, a death that is just, a death that is rightful, and not proclaim or share the hope of this loving gift to everyone in his jurisdiction, his own family at least, his children, his friends? Can you really understand what you have been saved from and never say a word? Especially, by the way, if you knew the time was really short for the person that's in front of you. Whether they be on their deathbed or whether they be alive at the time of the end of the Gentile. Who could receive a pardon and then not warn and not watch? 
Who thinks like that? Feel free to contemplate or zone out while I move along here. As you know, to add to that part, it has something to do with the sign of the taking of the bride or the rapture, if you prefer. As you know, most of you, and most of you wish you didn't know, but I'm captivated, I'm preoccupied by Albert Einstein's rejection of quantum mechanics theories, specifically his rejection of entanglement and superposition. And I'm obsessed because I believe Einstein to be fallible, as you know. And the evidence has since demonstrated that indeed Einstein was incorrect with respect to both entanglement, entanglement theory, and superposition theory, as well as being famously defeated by Niels Bohr with regard to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. I know, I, I know, I got this, by the way. I, the, the cries resonate from the internet and from this room. Please make him stop. I got that. I really do. But I can't stop. Why not? Because I know this is one of the great warnings and watchings of our lifetime. We get to see stuff that no one else even could consider. And it is information that is really compelling. And it is biblical information. It's also, in my case, probably a mental disorder. There's nothing I can do about it. I just I really am drawn to it. Anyway, the the Australians at Griffith University and the Japanese at the University of Tokyo just a couple of weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, I wanted to do this last week uh, during uh, First Fruits, but I thought there might be a visitor, so I didn't. But just a couple of weeks ago, those universities, those research groups, the Australians and the Japanese, verified the observer effect with respect to entanglement. And this is very significant because this experiment, the entanglement phenomenon, implies that the speed of light is not inviolable. Einstein was convinced that the speed of light was an absolute limit. And we are now discovering that Einstein was wrong. Now, if the speed of light is not absolute, what does that mean? Then, then Einstein's theory of relativity as a model of the structure of the universe and the structure of particles as a model is in disarray at the least. We're going to have to have adjustments, addendums. And by the way, the science governing the theory of black holes is confronting black holes that are larger than the science, the theoretical science of black holes, thought possible. Science is in turmoil. Quantum physics, that's why I, I love it so much. Perhaps black holes are not black holes. Won't that be fun? For me, it will be fantastic. Every day I will cling to my little pieces of paper. And I'm not surprised that black holes may not be black holes. I am not surprised that the speed of light is not inviolated. But I'm just digressing there a little bit. The Australian Tokyo experiments have verified that when a proton, a single proton, what they're doing is they're firing protons at, at beam-splitting mirrors. We've covered that in interferometry or in the past. If you don't understand it, just... Don't worry about it. Just listen to the, the, the bottom line. But the Australians specifically uh, have verified that when a proton takes a definite position, what's called in quantum physics or quantum mechanics, wave function collapse. And that's, a, that's the technical explanation or technical term for it. What it does is it leaves its superposition state. Superposition state means what? Do you remember? It means that a proton can occupy two places at the same time. It's called superposition. So it can be in two spots at once. Makes no sense, I know. But it leaves its superposition state after it's observed and measured. And it does so instantly. 
which is how fast. That's a lot faster than the speed of light. Instantly faster. Here we go. Duh. Big duh. Instantly is faster than the speed of light. And the Australians have confirmed that this occurs, as did the Japanese. Which makes me then ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. I said that for Sharon from Texas. She apparently has never heard me say that. Doesn't think it belongs on a t-shirt. But how many times have I said that? Sharon, let the record show thousands of times. I'm just kidding. But the obvious, your most obvious question then is if, if superposition or the, the collapse from a wave, excuse me, I have to take a drink here. If wave function collapse occurs instantly, faster than light, then the obvious question is, what else is instantaneous? Because that can't be the only instantaneous thing, if you will. That means there's something else faster than the speed of light, and there might be some things else faster, and I want to know what they are. And as you know, I, I have long been an advocate and a devotee of Isaac Newton. It stuns me what Isaac Newton was able to think of, essentially by himself. And Isaac Newton posited that something else was instantaneous. He said that all gravitational phenomenon was instantaneous. And the implication of Newton's concepts, uh, the implications of Newton's concept, concepts have always been profound, much to the dismay of the atheistic physicalists. The consequences to the atheist or to the atheism, if gravity is indeed an instantaneous force, is outright devastating. If gravity does not work the way Einstein thinks it works, which means almost all of science, then we have devastation in physics until they figure out how gravity does work. Which is why I'm always delighted to see these kinds of quantum investigations. And this is going to be a very interesting summer. Again, the waters of, of physics are roiling. There's almost an awakening going on in the physics world. My favorite questions are being considered. Yay for me. I'm, I can't, I'm just so thrilled. I'll give you a couple of ideas of some of my favorite questions. What is the origin of force? How does force happen? Or, or if you will, how did force, how did a force, any force, come into existence? But my very favorite is this, how fast is time? That's a future book title, by the way. Um, Supper Dave has been uh, uh, writing and corresponding with Professor Edgar Andrews, which is a wonderful thing. As you know, I made you all take one of his books and pretend to read it. Some of you did a marvelous job of pretending. Some of you actually read it. Edgar Andrews is a brilliant man, and, and uh, I'm, I'm offering my favorite question, how fast is time, for his next book. Granted, it's kind of a quick trick question, because hidden within the question is the presence of an absolute observer, something that Isaac Newton was convinced of. If things move and, and things react due to observation, then that implies an absolute observer, a creator of time. And so the answer to the question is how fast is time is no. That always confuses people. But think about it for a second. If I have absolute observation and a creator of time, then time to him has no velocity. It's stationary. So the answer to the question, how fast is time, is no. I imagine the book will sell at least three copies. I have to think if I know three people that would buy my book. Okay, I've also been watching the accompaniment to these things, which is the philosophical scientists. Uh, they debate Artificial intelligence, that's a big thing now, right? 
eventually their discussions collect into the possibility that the physical reality actually is non-existent. And this non-existent physical reality is somehow contained within a matrix established by an artificial intelligence. That's what they're saying. That may be no, that make no sense to you at all. It's okay. There's a movie about it. So in other words, they're willing to believe that a computer has created all, uh, some kind of artificial intelligence has created the entire physical reality which is really non-existent. And they readily accept that as possible, though it is absurd. It is Hollywood contrived build. But you see it treated almost as if it's reasonable in these discussions. As if the people who are proposing the movie theory of existence have some kind of credibility. But that's my point. The philosophical scientific scientists will debate this artificial intelligence concept uh, instead of the obvious. How about instead a living spiritual intelligence created the physical and spiritual reality and governs all of it? How about that? Instead of this false existent narrative, how about a true existence instead? And you should know why. Why won't they accept a true existence? Why do they want a false existence, a non-existent? Because, you see, the true existence is attached to something that they don't want. What is that? Accountability. Absolutely. They don't want accountability. The false existence is devoid of goodness and morality, so there is no accountability in it. And they want that. They seek no morality. The atheist clings to, to his hope that he will not be judged for his sin, no matter how logically ridiculous that is. And add to that the turbulence inside the quantum physics community, the approaching uh, anarchy, if you will, anarch. I can't even say the word, anarchical, there we go, condition of the Middle East. See, we have, what do we call what we're doing as the as State Department of the United States? We have this supposed, I say we because I don't know what else to say, we have this supposed nuclear diplomacy of the United States. And that supposed nuclear diplomacy has started the clock. If you want to watch for something, if anything will make you put down your phone, this is it. The clock has started in the Middle East, and it's our diplomacy that has done it. Our supposed diplomacy. The countdown to total war is occurring as we, as I'm speaking. Right now in the Middle East, nations are planning things. Right now. We could go home and find out something has happened while we were sitting here. Inexplicably, inexplicably, we can now confirm that the United States has allowed, to the delight of the Ayatollah and his mullahs in Iran, they have allowed Persia to maintain and operate its thousands of centrifuges. Its uranium enrichment is now at full-scale operation. And it's in a fortified facility and it's deeply buried where they don't believe we can get to them. By the way, at the end of the age, men hide in these caves, they're called in the Bible, convinced that God can't get them either. Not ever even considering that God can dissolve the cave, plus them. I mean, it's astonishing the, the, Ill, the Ill thinking that is in these kinds of people. But this uranium enrichment is at full scale. Add, and Iran has proxies. It's got two of them that you know, of course, Syria is a proxy, but Hezbollah in Lebanon is a proxy. And Iran has equipped Hezbollah to the north of Israel, hundreds of thousands now, for precision-guided missiles. At minimum, a hundred thousand. It's probably double that. So Hezbollah is preparing all-out war today. And Hamas, to the south of Israel, in Gaza, uh, they're soon going to be similarly equipped. They're going to have 100,000. Because we have stopped the sanctions, haven't we? This country has removed the sanctions and allowed Iran to now sell its oil reserves and build tremendous military capability. 
And they're going to disperse that capability. Already Hezbollah, but soon Hamas. And therefore, Israel and Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan are watching this today, tonight. And they got, they know they got to move. And they got to move fast. And if they don't, they're going to face an invading force backed by a nuclear Iran. And with the withdrawal of the United States as a deterrence, because our country has, with this administrative, I don't know what to call it, organization doesn't work, administrative thought, there we go, it's in this current State Department, the United States has withdrawn its deterrence. This war in the Middle East is a certainty. It's inevitable. It's going to go off any minute, any hour. So watch. Don't be one that is caught by surprise when this happens. Because what are you going to do when it happens? You're going to drop everything. Your self-focus goes away and you start warning other people. Anybody, I don't care if it's a grocery store, pizza delivery, whoever comes by you, you need to say, I'm at the gas station and I'm talking to a young man that I go see all the time because I go to the gas station all the time and buy what? Right. Diet Coke. The largest Diet Coke I can carry until they're illegal. No, they're only illegal in the state of New York, which is now, I don't even know if we can call it a state anymore. At least a city. At least get rid of the word new. Anyway, where am I? I talked to that young man. I said, have you been watching the advancement of total war in the Middle East? And he said, yeah, I've been watching. I said, good. Keep watching said, why? I said, it's one of the great prophetic warnings in all of the Bible. When you see the Confederacy of the North advance on Israel, then that is one of the great prophecies of scriptures yet unfulfilled. That means every word in the Bible is true. Now, it's already true. But he looked at me and he said, I've never heard of this. Well, Today you have. I'll see you later. Because I read my job description, right? We're entering a state, a condition where it is going to be so obvious the world has changed. It's changing right now. Every, every country being threatened by Iran is, like I said, contemplating and strategically planning where and when to attack Iran. Right now, they're doing it. Remember Chronister's Law. Things must get worse before they get worse. So three things are going to happen very, very soon, and I want you to know it. Israel is going to attack Hezbollah. Hezbollah has over 100,000 missiles. Israel knows it, and they're going to attack. It will be a, a, a ground invasion in my understanding, the way I see it, conceive it. And it'll be everything they've got. They have to. They must negate that missile capability that's sitting north of them. And they've got to do it before Iran uh, gets an enriched uranium bomb, a nuclear weapon. And so that's what they're going to do. And then someone must destroy Iran's naval force. Somebody's got to do it. So we're going to see an attack on the uh, naval fleet of the Iranians to keep the Iranians from controlling the Arabian Sea. So that's going to happen. That's number two. Number three, a joint military force must cripple and verify that it has permanently degraded the Iranian nuclear installations. That's going to require infantry and armor, as well as air force. And airspace, uh, you're going to see the Israeli planes flying through Jordanian airspace. 
I believe Pakistan will be involved. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And I'm, I'm going to go on record saying that all of these, those three things are necessary because the Ezekiel 38 Confederacy does not feature the Persians. They don't seem to be there very strongly. They're there, but they're not definitely not the, the, and you can argue that they're a proxy for Russia and I wouldn't disagree. But I also read Ezekiel 38 and I know that the Iran or Persia survives. They survive. Right now, there's a tremendous revival. There's a Christian movement in Iran, in Persia. And Persia goes into the nation, or goes into the millennium, sorry, as a converted nation. So, there's much to watch. And along with that, the Financial Times just had an article. See that, that piano over there? It's a Kurzweil. The man that invented that system is a brilliant, uh, computer scientist. His name is Ray Kurzweil. He wants to do one thing. He's preoccupied with one thing. There's a bunch of these guys, very, very wealthy people, who now have turned all of their money and their attention and their intellects towards defeating death. They want to live forever in a state of sinfulness. That's what they're doing. That's what they're thinking. Or what we Bible students refer to as the Luke 17:26 prophecy or Matthew 24, 38. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the in the days of the Son of Man, the Olivet Discourse, right? As it is, in, as it was in the days of Noah, it's going to be at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And so these three things are put together. I don't have time to put them on the board. The days of Lot, the days of Noah, and the and remember Lot's wife. I got those out of order. So he says, there's you have three things. You have to watch for the days of Noah. You have to watch for the days of Lot, and you have to remember Lot's wife. Luke 17, 26. Those three are interlocked. The one characteristic of them all is this suddenness in these three. Great sin is in Sodom. So much wickedness that God intervened. The wickedness in Sodom was ridiculous. And I'm going to tell you that it was all centered on the defeating of death, physical death. The the wickedness in the days of Noah, the outcry. When God says the outcry is great, the outcry is unbelievable, unimaginably great. So he said, pay attention, look to see what happened at Noah. By the way, in both places, Sodom and Noah, we had lives, uh, lifespans that were thousands of years, at least 1,000, perhaps two. The sin and violence was extraordinary. And sudden, suddenly, with no one even beginning to think it was happening, destruction came, catching the evil ones in their obliviousness, so focused in in their triumph in defeating death. That's the interesting thing to be. People who are going to defeat death think they have defeated death. No, you have defeated the death process. But there's a force. Your death can be taken from you by force. Back to the origin of force. But so focused that they have triumphed in defeating the death by decay process. They never saw the impending quick intervention of God. Neither in the time of Noah nor in the time of Lot. None of those people thought the death for all of them was immediate and sudden. They never anticipated it. And never again... Do the very evil ask, what do you think God's going to do? Their their intuition is that God is going to leave them and their evil. Their evil is never going to be ended. He's just going to walk away and let them go. Okay, all of that to tell you now we finally return to our subject. Which is Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the side sign of the taking of the bride, or the rapture. And I want you to notice the proximity, the order. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the time of Noah. Remember the time of Lot. Again, those are out of order. But those are brought up. They're the leading edge 
to the three parables of Matthew 24:45 through 25:30, or if you prefer, Luke 17:26:33. That's the complement to Matthew 24. So two weeks ago, lecture number 192, we had these lists that I put on the board from 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 18, and 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11. And the definition of words, God's definition, is where we left off. And hopefully you remember some of that discussion. As we were asking about the purpose of the rapture, or the taking of the bride, the sign of the taking of the bride. Why is God doing it with such suddenness? The theme of suddenness is in the taking of the bride. It catches the world completely unaware. They don't see it coming. They don't even know it happened in all likelihood. And that suddenness is opposed to the methodical, if you will, second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. He comes very slowly. And the entire world sees the Messiah, King, God himself of Israel coming. The whole world sees it. That's the opposite of the taking of the bride. No one sees it. Very few. And it's very quick or sudden. Okay, so now it's it's as fast as I can go. Reread a little bit of 2 Corinthians. You can see how this starts to work. Remember, I started by saying to you, find the signs, right? And then once you get this started to, once you've started to figure this out, Second Corinthians will tell you when the sudden taking of the bride is going to happen and why. So let me just read five verses. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is dissolved, talking about your body. So we know that if our earthly house, this tent is dissolved, what's that, what's that imply? If your body is dissolved, if, that means it's what? Possible that it won't be dissolved. Who's rooting for that? That's my my retirement plan. That's all I've got. For if we know that our earthly house, this tent, is dissolved, we have a building from God. We have an alternate plan. Now, I'm going to... I didn't underline that. I'm going to repeat it here as much as I can. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, internal in the heavens. So if it's not made by your hand, who made it? For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by immortality, our life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 1 states, If a believer's body dissolves, there is for us another body, a building from God. Note that Eve was builded by God. That's in that phrase there. So immediately go back and look at the building of Eve by God. And it's not made with hands. Instead, it is an eternal building, eternal in the heavens. And it is contrasted with our dissolving body. Right? The one that causes us to groan. You may not be groaning yet, but you're going to groan. Go ask somebody that's over 60 if we groan. We groan every minute. Let's see. I'm counting. Okay, I'm groaning again. doesn't take me long. I'm standing up here with a hernia belt on. We're groaning. That's the price of lifting shingle packages. 125 pounds apiece. What made me think I could do that? I'm an idiot. Anyway, we have another building not made with hands. It's an eternal building. It's eternal in the heavens. And it is contrasted with this dissolving body. The one that causes us to groan. We therefore long to be yearn to be clothed with our eternal habitation. It says, 
clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And having been clothed, we're no longer naked. So notice what he says. If you don't have your body, he calls you what? Naked. So if you are disembodied, he calls you naked. We, 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 us, our, not referring to your body ever. Are you in your body? In fact, it's doing the opposite. When you're dissolved, your body dissolved, I'm sorry, you still are functional. He makes it clear. He says it so many times I can't even count it. His pronoun. He could have said I. I I have a building from God that when it dissolves, I have a building from God. And I groan in this body. And uh, I will not be found naked once I get my other body. Right now I'm naked. When I'm dead, I'm naked. When the believer is dead, he is naked. And it is not him that is dead. It is just the body has dissolved. So notice we there. We, us, you, me, are not the building. The building is made with hands and causes us to groan, meaning that it is a sin-filled device now in the sewage of this cursed world. But we, I, you, us, there's a new building, a new piece of clothing for us. And we get that. And And that new piece of clothing has life, immortality to it. So the new building, the new habitation, the new clothing doesn't die, doesn't dissolve anymore. As opposed to the one that we have now that's dissolving. Mine is dissolving in front of your eyes. Just close your eyes. Look at me now. Close your eyes. Wait 15 seconds. Look at me again. I'll be dissolving. It's noticeable. Note that God describes us as naked if we don't have a building. If we don't have clothing. Understand that. That helps you recognize the purpose of the rapture and the timing of the rapture. Clothing or a building, to repeat, is not us. It is merely that which is used to manifest ourselves, our true, our mind, if you will. It aids in our communicative abilities and our physical service, both of which are utilized by God. I sometimes describe our bodies as a machine. I think it's fine. I think that's a perfect analogy. My favorite analogy, most people think it's an aircraft, because I use planes a lot, but my favorite is a tank. And I do that because we're often referred to as Christian soldiers, military adjectives in in Scripture. We march and we have an order and we have orders and we have commands that we are given from a higher officer, if you will, from the higher officer, our creator. And the tank that that I'm in right now, I'm a tank driver. And the tank that I'm in, it's rusting, it's out of fuel almost, its treads are missing, it's stuck in the mud, got holes everywhere in it, it's smoking. But God does not want me to be without a tank. He wants me to have a tank. Or a plane to fly. Or my favorite, a flying tank. That's what I'm hoping for. If, you, if, you're, if your plane gets blown out of the sky, or if your tank gets torn to pieces, he calls that nakedness. He intends for us to have a body that can't dissolve, a tank that never runs out of fuel and never rusts and never fails you. That's his intention. An immortal body combined with our already living soul, which by definition, living means immortality. That's his plan. That's his guarantee. That's his promise. That's why he is taking the bride. He's making this happen. Why does he do it in the order he does it? Why doesn't he take all of us? What I mean by all of us is Israel. He doesn't. He has an order to his resurrections, to his getting rid of the clothing that is dissolving, the body that is dissolving, and the machine that is failing. And he is giving us an immortal body. And this happens to be and I'll say this, pre-tribulational, this happens to be for pre-tribulational church believers 
and it happens sudden, and it is hidden, and it is the sign of the taking of the bride. Now, will my new heaven-made flying tank have the same serial number as my rusted-out, burning-down, stuck-in-the-mud, bullet-ridden tank that I have now? Will it have? In other words, again, will it have elements? Will the serial number be the same as this dissolving one that currently is causing me to groan? Is that how he's going to do it? And you answer? Some of you say no. Some of you say yes. This is the fun part of church. Next week, I will put everyone who says no over here. Everyone who says yes over here. Now, it'll really be great if I can separate married couples. That's my goal. And I have done it, haven't I, Bill? My favorite story is that I did it to a pastor and his wife, and he stood up and he looked at her, and he said, Woman, you are in error. It was, it was one of the greatest achievements I've ever had as a, as a teacher of the Bible. And I know they're still together, but I had her convinced. That's my plan next week. I will convince both of you, both sides, that you are right. However, what can that mean? One, you're predisposed to thinking that you're right, and you both can't be right. So we'll do that next week. Because you have to answer this. If you say it's yes, that you're going to keep the serial number. And by the way, just to help you out a little bit, did Christ keep the holes in his body? Yes, he did. Why did he do that? Did he keep his serial number? That's God. Oh. That's not fair, is it? Because his body had no sin. His body did not make him groan. His body did not dissolve. His body could not dissolve. So it's not the same thing. Just in case I had convinced you either way. Have I unconvinced you? Good. That's the plan. Let's rise and be dismissed.